Welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Rosemary Ankwe, bringing you readings from the following publications Missouri Independent, Associated Press, Ebony, Kansas Reflector, Huff Post, The Griot, The Root, Blavity News, and The Community Voice. The first article is titled The Bumpy Road to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Birthday, Becoming a National Holiday, by D.L. Chandler, C-H-A-N-D-L-E-R, The Griot, January 17, 2022. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stands as the most towering figure of the civil rights movement, so it's no wonder why the famed minister's birth is celebrated each year as a federal holiday. The road to Dr. King's birthday gaining such recognition began just days after his untimely death and was nationally recognized in full 22 years ago. Just four days after King's assassination, U.S. Representative John Conyers, C-O-N-Y-E-R-S of Michigan, introduced the first bill on the Congress floor proposing that the slain activist's birthday be made into a federal holiday. The congressman at the time was one of the few black voices in the House chamber and was a visible supporter of the civil rights movement dating back to the start of his congressional tenure. Amid the discourse in moving the bill ahead into law, several states instituted their versions of MLK Day, with Illinois making the day a paid holiday in 1973, after initially introducing Commemoration Day in 1979. Connecticut also made MLK Day a paid holiday that year. Congressman Conyers did not rest on his laurels and continued to introduce a similar bill annually, gaining some support from his peers in the form of co-sponsors. In July of 1983, Representative Katie Hall introduced what would be the final version of the bill, which passed overwhelmingly in the House, and moved to the Senate chamber, meeting resistance from Senator Jesse Helms of North Carolina, who shared a lengthy FBI report that framed King as a radical communist and anti-American. Senator Daniel Patrick Monaghan stood tall against his Republican counterpart, throwing the report to the ground, and Senator Ted Kennedy accused Helms of spreading inaccuracies. The tenacity displayed by Conyers and several members of the Congressional Black Caucus brought the bill to the floor for open debate, and the 15-year effort eventually paid off when President Ronald Reagan signed the bill into law on November 2nd 1983, and was first recognized as a federal holiday on January 20, 1986. Lonnie G. Bunch, the third, Secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, spoke with the Grio about the various roads taken by Conyers and the CBC to gain congressional passage for the holiday. Secretary Bunch one of the leading historians of his era, looked back at the early days of the law's journey and how it met resistance from all sides, not just conservative figureheads. 
It was such an incredible process, and it began just a handful of days after Dr. King's assassination, Bunch began. There was a public outcry, among many, of how to remember this great historic figure, and it met resistance from Senator Helms and Senator John Porter. Bunch continued, it took another 14 years from the official start of the holiday to be recognized by the entire nation, which illustrates how central race is in this country, even today, and how divided the nation was even in honor of someone who wanted to make America better. Bunch made sure to mention that King was initially met with skepticism among Black Americans in the 1950s because of his boldness and push for voting equality that often seemed to be an uphill battle. It's amazing that toward the end of his life, many of the rough edges around King were made smooth, Bunch explained. He even began to become more radical, especially on the front of economic equality, but he still retained this reverence from all sides. But I like to think of King as a radical American. Bunch suggests that ways to honor Dr. King would be to study his life's work and use the proven methods of galvanizing others for the greater good, and then apply it to the modern way of getting things in motion. King's legacy isn't just what happened in 1968, it's about today and tomorrow. Martin Luther King dreamed of an America that was yet to be, and the notion that we still need to dream about the America that is yet to be is how we best maintain his legacy forever, Bunch concluded. This article was titled, The Bumpy Road to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Birthday, Becoming a National Holiday, by D.L. Chandler, The Griot, January 17th, 2022. The next article is titled Six Songs Honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Dream and Legacy by Megan Ambers, A-M-B-E-R-S, Blavity News, January 14, 2022. It's been 27 years since former President Ronald Reagan signed the bill officially acknowledging Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday as a national holiday, a day cemented to honor the life and legacy of Dr. King and to encourage all Americans to volunteer for a better community. Dr. King became the face of the civil rights movement, advocating nonviolent sit-ins, marches, and peaceful demonstrations to rid society of racial injustice. Unfortunately, in 1968, Dr. King was assassinated at 39 despite his efforts to bring peace and order to the world. But before he passed away, Dr. King used his communication talents with his speeches and through song. Notably, as one of Dr. King's favorite, Take My Hand, Precious Lord, he was captivated and inspired by the performance of Mahalia Jackson. Jackson would perform the song with him at demonstrations to inspire civil rights activists and followers as they sought to further their cause. Dr. King's last words were said to be a request for this song. Jackson performed the song at Dr. King's funeral. Though Dr. King passed away more than 50 years ago, artists continued to pay tribute 
to the slain activists through their music. From U2 to Young Jeezy, Stevie Wonder, and Public Enemy, here are six tribute songs to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. U2 Pride in the Name of Love. U2's Pride is one of the greatest songs ever dedicated to Dr. King. However, the song originated with a former president and a different message in mind. Pride, the first single from the group's 1984 album, The Unforgettable Fire, is said to have been accidentally created during a sound check during their war tour in 1983, according to iHeart Media. The publication further mentions that the band found inspiration for the song after visiting a Dr. King exhibit at the Chicago Peace Museum in the same year. Initially, Bono had the idea of criticizing former President Ronald Reagan's leadership with the song, but decided he did not want to draw attention to the former president, so he chose Dr. King as a better fit for the band's message. Despite the song's success and powerful message, Pride was criticized by listeners as historically inaccurate due to its reference to the time of Dr. King's assassination. Early morning, April 4, shots rings out in the Memphis sky, the lyrics read, when in fact, Dr. King died around 6 p.m. According to iHeart, Bono has realized his mistake and now performs early evening April 4 live. The song would become U2's first top 40 hits, peaking at number 33 on the Billboard top 40 hit list. In January, Bono and U2 paid tribute to Dr. King on Sirius XM Radio's U2X Radio. In a statement from Sirius XM, Bono honored Dr. King in a 10-minute video by reading excerpts, memorable speeches by MLK. Dr. King kept us tolerant in a time of terror, Bono said, kept us faithful to peace and community, made us believe in joy and justice, showed us the way to a shared humanity. Dr. King's voice is louder today than it has ever been. He is one of the true fathers of our American dream. Stevie Wonder, happy birthday. One of two birthday songs usually comes to mind when we think of birthday songs. One is the traditional happy birthday song, and the other is Stevie Wonder's version, also referred to as the black version. This song was written as a part of a campaign to mark Dr. King's birthday as a national holiday in 1981. Social activists wonder penned the song in response to the lack of respect for King's legacy. I just never understood how a man who died for good could not have a day that would be set aside for his recognition, he questioned. Wonder worked with King's widow, Coretta Scott King, to support the movement. As a result, a petition containing over six million signatures urging the national holiday was delivered to the White House by Wonder and Mrs. King in the following year. U.S. former President Ronald Reagan signed a bill in 1983 that established Martin Luther King Jr. Day as the third Monday of every January. Happy Birthday was released as a single in several countries outside the United States. The song became one of Wonder's biggest hits in the U.K., reaching number two in the charts in 1981. King Dream Chorus and Holiday Crew, King Holiday. In 1986, hip-hop contributed 
to one of the most memorable Dr. King tributes in music history. King Holiday was released on January 13th to commemorate Dr. King's first observation as a national holiday. Dr. King's first observation as a national holiday. Hip-hop legends Curtis Blow, B-L-O-W, and Grandmaster Melly Mel co-wrote the six-minute track with music journalist Bill Adler and Philip Jones, who also served as co-producer. The tribute was executive producer Dexter Scott King, Dr. King's youngest son who started the project. Among the stars on the tribute were Elle DeBarge, Tina Marie, New Edition, the late Whitney Houston, and more. In a statement featured on the U.S. 7-inch vinyl single back cover, Dexter revealed that he was dedicating the song to his father and mother for their work towards equality for Black people. This song is dedicated to the memory and legacy of my father's dream for peace, justice, and equality. We pay tribute to he who have paved the way, a man who gave so much and asked for so little while leaving us with a blueprint of righteousness, Dexter said. It is also dedicated to my mother, whose living work and continued strength through deep support and understanding have helped move toward fulfilling and institutionalizing the dream, manifesting her as the true torchbearer. As part of the tribute, Dexter mentioned that all proceeds went to the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change, Inc., and thanked all the artists that contributed to the tribute. A very, very special thanks goes out to those people who worked closest to me, to Phil Jones for a job well done, to Michelle Clark for being motherly and taking care of the real business at hand, and to Curtis Blow, the king of rap, for opening the door, Dexter said. Other notable performers included Fat Boys, Full Force, Stacey Ladisaw, Lisa Lisa, Menendo, Stephanie Mills, Run DMC, James J.T. Taylor, and Houdini. King Holiday peaked number 30 on the Billboard Hot Black Singles chart, now known as Hot R&B Hip Hop Singles and Tracks. Nina Simone, Why? The King of Love is Dead. Nina Simone sang the song, Why, for the first time at the Westbury Music Fair in New York, three days after the death of Dr. King. According to You Discover Music, the song was written by Simone's Bassett, Jean Taylor. We want to do a tune written for today, for this hour, for Dr. Martin Luther King, Simone said. This tune is written about him and for him. In a report by NPR, Simone performed the song for nearly 15 minutes. Her brother, Samuel Wayman, W-A-Y-M-O-N, the organist, revealed that the band learned the song the same day and performed it without preparation. We learned that song that same day, Wayman said. We didn't have a chance to have two or three days of rehearsal. But when you're feeling compassion and outrage and wanting to express what you know the world is feeling, we did it because that's what we felt. In 1968, the same year of the performance and Dr. King's assassination, Simone sat down for an interview 
for Italian radio. Rolling Stones reports that Simone questioned the fate of the people now that Dr. King, the king of love, was dead. In a narrative way, it is a folk song, Simone said. Why was he killed? It was bigotry that sealed his fate. Will my country ever learn? Must it kill at every turn? We have to know what the consequences of these acts will bring. Simone begins to paraphrase the lyrics to the song. Then it says, folks, you better stop and think, because we're all heading for the brink, the singer says. Which is the truth? What will happen now? The king of love is dead. So the song is extremely powerful there. There is no conclusion. It just leaves you up in the air. Why? The king of love is dead was featured on Simone's album, Nuff Said. The album, excluding two tracks, was live recorded during her appearance at the Westbury Music Festival. Public Enemy, By the Time I Get to Arizona. Going down in history, as one of the music world's best raptivist, rap slash activist groups of all time, it doesn't come as a surprise that Public Enemy's Chuck D's penned one of the most potent MLK tributes. According to Spin Magazine, rapper Chuck D wrote the song in protest after the people of Arizona voted down a proposal to create a state holiday for Dr. King in November 1990. Two years before the vote, then-Governor Evan Meckham, M-E-C-H-A-M, canceled MLK Day in Arizona. The publication reports, Meacham was quoted saying, I guess King did a lot for the colored people, but I don't think he deserves a national holiday. Chuck D. aimed harsh lyrics at the citizens of Arizona and the former governor of Arizona despite the song not being released as a single. Instead, Public Enemy opted to release the song as a music video that MTV only aired one time. The magazine reports that Public Enemy recreated 60s-era images of civil rights protesters being beaten in the music video and even showed a clip of Chuck D detonating a car bomb that assassinated Governor Meacham. Despite the rap group's best effort to bring awareness to the cause, the video was met with disapproval from the public, including Mrs. Coretta King. According to Entertainment Weekly in 1992, Mrs. King condemned the video, stating it didn't represent the activist. We do not subscribe to violence as a way to achieve any social or economic ends, Mrs. King said. We condemn violence in any form. Despite the backlash, it made the change it was looking to make. According to the Washington Post, after the NFL pulled the 1993 Super Bowl from Arizona, the state lost over $350 million in revenue. MLK was reinstated in Arizona in 1993. Young Jeezy and Nas, my president. It was a great day in hip-hop when two huge rappers, Young Jeezy and Nas, put aside their differences to pay tribute to the then-president-elect Barack Obama. The platinum-selling track, My President, served as a reminder of black politicians' accomplishments while giving the nod to Dr. King and his legacy. Young Jeezy shares his views and perspective on politics and the future former President Obama would bring to the country throughout the song. At the end of Jeezy's second verse, he refers to Dr. King's 
I Have a Dream speech and imagines a conversation with the late rapper Pimp C. In November 2008, the rapper filmed the music video for the tribute in Atlanta, Georgia, where he calls home. During an interview with MTV, Jeezy paid homage to Dr. King once again, walking through his childhood neighborhood. This is Martin Luther King's hood, Jeezy said. I don't know if y'all know it or not. Aubrey Avenue, a very monumental spot. Probably one of the most monumental historic spots we have in Atlanta. It's a monumental video, so I wanted to do it in a monumental spot. Auburn Avenue, Ebenezer Baptist Church. According to MTV News, Ebenezer was the church where Martin Luther King Jr. preached, and it's just a few minutes from his childhood home. Rolling Stone ranked My President as one of the 100 best songs of 2008, ranked number 16. As we honored Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we continue to celebrate Dr. King's legacy. Whatever the music may be, whether it's Nina Simone or Young Jeezy, Dr. King's message for equality, his fight for injustice, and his intolerance of racism will live forever. This article is titled Six Songs Honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Dream and Legacy by Megan Ambers, Blavity News, January 14th. 2022. The next article is a special segment titled The Hill We Climb, a spoken word poem written by American poet Amanda Gorman and recited by her at the inauguration of Joe Biden in Washington, D.C. on January 20th, 2021. The Hill We Climb. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always just ice. Isn't always just is. And yet the dawn is ours. Before we knew it, somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. We the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of being president, only to find herself reciting for one. And yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge a union with a purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gazes, not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the divide because we know to put our future first, we must first put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harmony to none and harmony for all. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true. That even as we grieved, we grew. That even as we hurt, we hoped. That even as we tired, we tried. That we'll forever be tied together victorious. Not because we will never again know defeat 
but because we will never again sow division. Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. If, we, if we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade. But in all the bridges we've made, that is the promise to glade. The hill we climb, if only we dare. It's because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the step we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it, would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. Delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this truth, in this faith we trust. For while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. This is the era of just redemption. We feared at its inception. We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour. But within it, we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. For while once we asked, how could we possibly prevail over catastrophe? Now we assert, how could catastrophe possibly prevail over us? We will not march back to what was, but move to what shall be, a country that is bruised but whole, benevolent but bold, fierce and free. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their burdens, but one thing is certain. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left with. Every breath from my bronze pounded chest. We will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the gold-limbed hills of the west. We will rise from the wind-swept northeast, where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states. We will rise from the sun-baked south. We will rebuild, reconcile, and recover, and every known nook of our nation and every corner called our country. Our people diverse and beautiful will emerge, battered and beautiful. When day comes, we will step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light. If only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. This poem is titled, The Hill We Climb, a spoken word poem written by American poet Amanda Gorman and recited by her at the inauguration of Joe Biden in Washington, D.C. on January 20th, 2021. The next article is titled, Omicron's Rapid Spread Puts Missouri on Track for COVID Cases worse than it has ever been, by Rudy Keller, K 
K-E-L-L-E-R, Missouri Independent, December 30th, 2021. Missouri's two largest counties will continue their efforts to overturn a court ruling that severely limits the powers of local health departments. At the same time, health officials warn the Omicron variant will bring thousands of new COVID-19 cases. Missouri reported almost 10,000 new coronavirus infections Monday, making December the second worst month of the pandemic this year. Only January had more cases. The Monday report was an accumulation of four days of test results because the Department of Health and Senior Services did not report over Christmas weekend. Daily average cases are at levels not seen since January, before vaccines became widely available. The State Department, in a news release, reported the Omicron variant was found in samples from 32 wastewater facilities last week, up from two, just two weeks ago. I'm expecting it to be worse in the next few weeks than it has ever been during the pandemic in terms of cases per day. Mark Johnson, professor of molecular microbiology and immunology at the University of Missouri, told The Independent. Johnson's lab analyzes more than 100 samples and large sewer systems around the state each week. The forecast comes as many counties have seized all work to trace or quarantine coronavirus cases as a result of Circuit Judge Daniel Green's November 22nd ruling that state health department rules granting local agencies powers for disease control measures were unconstitutional. Jackson and St. Louis counties are working together on the appeal. St. Louis County Executive Sam Page said in a news conference on Monday, he accused Attorney General Eric Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-T-T, of using the ruling to bully local health departments and pander for votes in the upcoming U.S. Senate primary. The confusion has already led to some county public health departments abandoning their response to rising COVID cases out of fear that the wrath of the state will descend on them, Page said. The attorney general chose to not step up and appeal the Cole County case, ignoring his sworn duty to protect all the residents. Instead, he is playing to an anti-vax crowd that he believes will help him get into a higher office. The decision came final Wednesday after he ruled against requests from St. Louis and Jackson counties, as well as several others to intervene. The appeal will seek to reverse Green's decision against intervention. It will also seek to overturn his decision in the case and argue that he overstepped his authority to add issues to the case that were not raised by the plaintiffs, according to the notice of appeal. Since the ruling, Schmidt has sent cease and desist letters to school districts and health departments warned of future litigation if they fail to comply immediately and set up and set up an inbox for parents to send complaints about districts continuing mitigation measures. On December 17th, his office reported receiving 7,500 complaints and issuing 52 cease and desist letters to school districts. The office statement read, We will continue to defend the rights and freedoms of Missourians 
to make personal health decisions for their own families. The Omicron variant was first confirmed in the state in a lab that analyzed a test from a patient, and then it became apparent in wastewater samples from St. Joseph and Kansas City. In the two weeks since, it was found in sewage in those communities. It has spread to 30 others. Omicron is the first variant to spread faster than the Delta variant, which is blamed for hundreds of thousands of infections and more than 4,700 deaths since it reached the state in May. The existence of the Omicron variant is becoming much more prevalent each week, making the actions of COVID-19 individual testing, vaccination, and other mitigation measures more important as we face the threat of the Delta variant and an increase in flu cases. Donald Kauroff, K-A-U-E-R-A-U-F, Department of Health and Senior Services Director, said in the release. The department reported 9,979 new cases Monday, the first data released since Thursday, except for 17 cases reported on Friday. The daily average of the reported cases stood at 3,274 per day, which is about the rate in mid-January. There have been 79,340 coronavirus infections reported in Missouri so far this month. All but nine of the state's 118 local health jurisdictions have higher infection rates this month than the full month of November. The state's COVID-19 dashboard, which reports averages with a three-day delay, shows 3,057 cases per day, the highest since rapid antigen test cases were added to the report in March. With New Year's parties approaching, Kararoff warned Missourians to be careful. Gatherings are continuing during this holiday season, and I highly encourage testing before and after these events and any travels to help limit any unintended spread of the virus, said Kararoff. If you're not feeling well, stay home and don't risk getting your loved one sick. It is important for individuals to plan ahead when identifying a location and advance timing needed to get tested, as there is a growing demand for those services. Full results of the wastewater analysis will be online Thursday, showing where it has been found and where it is pushing aside the Delta variant, much of it along interstate highway corridors, Johnson noted. It is the first variant that is gaining ground against Delta, he said. It is replicating faster than Delta. At his news conference, Page said all he could do is encourage people to get vaccinated, wear masks, and sanitize often. He has asked the St. Louis County Council to impose a mask order for the county, but it has not received a vote. We talked about this, and at this point, the council chair is not ready to move forward on a mask mandate, Page said, and I don't know if that will change. This article is titled, Omicron's Rapid Spread Puts Missouri on Track for COVID Cases Worse Than It Has Ever Been by Rudy Keller, Missouri Independent, December 30th, 2021. The next article is titled, Tessa Thompson Looks Ahead, 
The Changemaker by Wesley Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, December 2021 to January 2022. Ebony. Tessa Thompson was in London years ago when she got the text message. You're not available to do this movie, Hollywood producer Angela Robinson wrote, but I suspect you would want to make yourself available. You should read it. The movie, a project then in its infancy, was an adaptation of Passing, Nella Larson's 1929 novella about two mixed-race Black women who had been childhood friends and reconnect in adulthood. Thompson was shocked that she had never even heard of the book before, even more so once she began reading it. The story is about Irene Redfield, an upper-class Harlem housewife, and Claire Hendry, K-E-N-D-R-Y, who is passing as white and married to a racist white man. Initially repulsed by the life her friend has chosen, Irene soon finds herself reconsidering her own, her race, her marriage, her children, and perhaps even her sexuality. The women have set out on very different paths, but if happiness is its destination, it becomes clear neither Irene nor Claire has reached it. I'm beginning to believe, Irene murmurs to her friend midway through the novel, that no one is ever completely happy or free or safe. I was haunted by it, Thompson, 38, who read the book in a single sitting. Robinson had been right. Thompson wanted to be attached to the story. There was so much mystery inside of the pages, she says. The resolution, or lack thereof, prompted way more questions than it answered. Before long, Thompson was on the phone and then meeting up in person with English actress Rebecca Hall, who had crafted the screenplay, which is in part inspired by her own family's story. Her grandfather was a black man who passed for white. Thompson pledged to clear her schedule to play the role of Irene, a commitment that stretched on for years as Hall fought to get the project financed. After a limited theatrical release in October, Netflix passing which marks Hall's directional debut, made its way to the network, quickly becoming one of the streaming service's most popular offerings. Sitting at home on the couch with her dog, Holtrain, next to her, Thompson says she's been too busy doing press to read the reviews. But when her agent texted her to let her know that they had been largely glowing, she said she was pleased but unsurprised. Getting to watch a woman unravel, getting to watch that on screen, I don't think that black women are allowed to exist in narratives like that very often, Thompson said. I just don't think Hollywood affords black women the opportunity to do that very often. Nella Larson penned Passing nearly a century ago, but for anyone who's seen Thompson's portrayal of Irene and heard the star explain the character's inner workings, it would be hard not to imagine that the part was custom-written for her. After a TV stint on Veronica Mars, Thompson broke through on the big screen in 2009's Mississippi Damned. Before long, she was everywhere, portraying Diane Nash in 2014 Selma, Bianca, the hearing-impaged significant other of the title character in the Creed films, 
Detroit, the artist girlfriend of down and out worker Cassius, played by Lakeith Stanfield in 2018's Sorry to Bother You and Valkyrie, a sword wielding heroine in the Marvel film franchise. Yet the part of Irene presented a new challenge. Both the star and her character are striking and cerebral. Neither expresses herself most fully through her spoken words. Even though the novel is not necessarily in the first person, it's intensely from Irene's perspective. She's someone who thinks and feels a lot, Thompson says, as treacherous as the territory is for her, psychologically and emotionally. I feel quite safe inside of her experience because I'm someone who thinks and feels a lot. The actress has always been fascinated by identity and the way it's performed. As a child, she would play with how she dressed, taking note of how the world would relate differently to her depending on her appearance. She found herself charmed by David Bowie and Prince. I became aware that inside of their performance, inside of their music, there was a performance that had to do with identity. They were playing with gender. They were upending expectations. It's the idea that in the perfect world, you should be allowed to create with real freedom and flexibility with who we want to be. Raised by parents of different races, her father, the singer-songwriter Mark Anthony Thompson, is Afro-Panamanian. Her mother is half-white and half-Mexican. Thompson had room to explore this issue while growing up in Los Angeles. In previous interviews, she has talked about how in high school, she established a racial harmony group, a regular sleepover composed of 20 students of different races. One year, she joined as a black student, the next as a Mexican student. She tried to label herself as a white student the third year, but her classmates vetoed the notion. She wasn't confused or conflicted, but rather she wanted clarity about the extent to which identity is a creation. Despite appearances, Passing is not just or even primarily a film about race. Thompson's character is torn about everything, not just her skin color. When Irene first encounters Claire, she's deeply turned off, perplexed that her friend could have abandoned her racial identity, and offended that Claire now seemed to want to have her to serve as a tour guide of Black Harlem. But Irene soon finds herself captivated by Claire, who holds up a mirror that exposes the flaws in the life Irene has constructed for herself. While they can pass as a happily married couple, Irene and her husband, Brian, played by Andre Holland, are not. By the book's closing pages, she isn't even sure that she's ever been in love. Irene is not the one necessarily who is passing racially. She's the one who's passing in every other way, Thompson explains. My work in the film had to do with all of that murky territory. I was more interested in what the film was saying more broadly and more specifically about the human experience. That chasm between how the world wants to see you and how you see yourself. Or, as Irene puts it in film, we're all passing for something or the other. We're all passing for something or other, aren't we? This article was an excerpt from Ebony's December 2021, January 2022, 
cover story titled, Tessa Thompson Looks Ahead, The Changemaker by Wesley Lowry. The next article is titled, Online Orders for Free at-Home COVID Tests to Begin January 19th by Ariana Guerrero, January 18th, 2022, Washington. The Biden administration on Friday launched a new website for Americans to request up to four free COVID-19 tests per household. The administration is buying 1 billion at-home rapid COVID-19 tests, and Americans will be able to begin ordering the tests online on January 19th at covidtest.gov, C-O-V-I-D, all caps, lowercase t-e-s-t-s dot gov. This is part of the administration's effort to curb the spike of the Omicron coronavirus variant that has overwhelmed hospitals and schools. Tests should ship via U.S. Postal Service between 7 and 12 days after they are ordered, senior administration officials said on a call with reporters. Testing is a critical tool to help mitigate the spread of COVID-19. The White House said tests should be used by individuals who begin to have COVID-19 symptoms after five days of coming into close contact with someone with COVID-19 or if gathering indoors with someone who is at risk for a severe disease or is unvaccinated. Children four and under are not eligible for the vaccines. The initial 500 billion tests are expected to cost $4 billion, a senior administration official said. The Biden administration also announced that starting Monday, private insurance providers will cover the cost of up to eight at-home COVID-19 tests per person per month. On Thursday, Biden said that in addition to free tests, Americans would also get free high-quality masks. The administration also aims to make sure members of some communities, the hardest hit by COVID-19, will have a hotline they can access if they do not have internet access or have difficulty ordering tests online. The number to call for help is not available yet. Officials also urged Americans to seek out free testing centers on their own. There are about 20,000 free testing sites across the country. This article was titled, Online Orders for Free at-Home COVID Tests to Begin January 19th by Ariana Figueria, Ohio Capital Journal, Newsbreak, January 18, 2022. The next article is titled, Ian Alexander Jr.'s Death Reignites a Much-Needed Mental Health Dialogue by Candice Marie Benbow, B-E-N-B-O-W, The Griot, January 24, 2022. The death of Ian Alexander, only child of the award-winning actress and director, Regina King, due to an apparent suicide, has reignited necessary conversations regarding the state of mental health in Black America. More specifically, it dispels myths that those with more resources and greater access to care are less likely to navigate significant mental health challenges. Mental health isn't about class, 
Dr. Monica A. Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N, Professor of Africana Studies at the University of Delaware, and author of Bipolar Faith, A Black Woman's Journey with Depression and Faith, tells the griot. It's about chemistry, trauma, genetics, experience, and all these things put together. Mental health is an equalizer, and all of us can experience that. Reverend Dr. Willie Francois, Senior Pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church in Pleasantville, New Jersey, and Director of Master's Programs at Sing Sing Correctional Facility through New York Theological Seminary, says Black men are often victims to assumptions that their privilege and education insulates them as well. It has to be clear that success and wealth aren't guardrails for depression or suicidal ideation, Francois says. Just because one has a level of means, notoriety, or artistic outlets, they are not insulated from the impact of what it means to be human and emotionally unsettled in the world. Though it is understood Black men face structural and social restraints that impact their emotional well-being, Dr. Thema Bryant, president-elect of the American Psychological Association and professor of psychology at Pepperdine University, noted that there are still few spaces that allow them to address this in healthy ways. I've had Black male clients who have had people be dismissive of their depression, or when they say they're struggling, Bryant tells the griot. Too often, men are socialized to not ask for help or fully communicate the ways in which they're struggling. And the challenge sometimes becomes that, when they do, their medical doctors, family members, and even other Black men have told them, you're going to be all right, and not really hearing the pain they're in. Francois believes that while Black men have traditionally learned on the barbershop and male friendship circles, there must be a concerted institutional effort to address their mental and emotional health, especially as it relates to the implications of dangerous religious narratives concerning mental health. If the Black church continues to get this wrong, I don't know who will get it right, he says. Coleman agrees. There was an expectation when George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were murdered that pastors would say something that Sunday, she says. We need pastors to do the same for Ian. If the church and other institutions are insufficient in addressing mental health, it stands to reason the resources for and responses to loved ones will lack as well. The COVID-19 global pandemic has upended all systems, becoming especially taxing for those already navigating mental and emotional wellness. Most people sustain their mental health through the community. Without even being conscious of it, many people lost their main source of what keeps them mentally well, says Coleman, adding that the inability to get timely appointments with therapists and clinicians and overcrowded hospitals put many at a deficit to manage their mental wellness. The impact of major depression and suicide impacts everyone, and too often loved ones are left with shame caused by belief there was something they could have said or done. 
When someone dies by suicide, what we often try to do is replay the most recent conversation and interactions, trying to think of what we could have said or done differently, Brian says. But the power and the pull of suicide is such that there isn't a magic sentence or words. This is why we must give ourselves grace and compassion and a lot of love. Francois says he also believes it's time to challenge the preconceived notions of what depression looks like, especially for those who are considered successful and highly functioning. I don't know if the signs are consistent enough to say what we're supposed to be looking for, he says. I do know that when I don't hear from my best friend at any point in the week, I know he's withdrawn. That's why it's important to pay attention to people's routines and when they shift from them. For families and loved ones, the regret that they can miss signs often becomes too real. When someone is in the grips of suicidal ideation and has a plan or access to the plan, a shift has already taken place. And it's not helpful to ask yourself how you failed in shifting their decision, Brian says. But there are seasons when people are crying for help and sending signals that they are not okay, and we can be helpful in that space. Bryant offers suggestions on how to encourage Black men to express their emotions. First, she says, loved ones must ask open-ended questions. We have to broaden and deepen our questions to ask, how's your heart? Or, there's a lot going on. How's it been hitting you? Bryant also says that even as we ask deeper questions, our body language and time given should reflect that we're interested in a real answer. Sometimes we ask, but are also making clear we don't really want to hear it, according to Bryant. There is research that shows people are more apt to having these conversations while engaged in an activity so as not to feel surveilled or attacked. Having the conversation while on a walk or putting things away helps people to not feel as if they're under a microscope. Brian also advises that moments like this requires intention regarding how we talk about mental health because those in our lives who may struggle to understand our meaning. This is also why it's important to shift from the conventional language that someone has committed suicide. I think too often when we're thinking of people we've lost to suicide, it's the idea that they were sitting there with a healthy, clear mind and they considered us and their future and they chose it because they didn't care, Bryant notes. That's the absolute opposite of what severe depression and suicide are. Francois says the pandemic has given us all permission to have an ethic of crying where privacy invasion might be the difference between life and death. We're all living under trauma we haven't even calculated yet. I think that gives us permission to pry into the lives of people we love. Ultimately, the one thing Coleman says we can all do is simply check in with our friends and loved ones. We have to check in with people who get quiet, people who you know are living alone or aren't getting out. We also have to check in with our friends who are getting out just to ask if they're okay and what they need. We really don't know what that extra step of a Zoom or phone call can do. If you or someone you know is contemplating suicide, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK.
1-800-273-8255 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. This article was titled, Ian Alexander Jr.'s Death Reignites a Much-Needed Mental Health Dialogue by Candace Marie Benbow, The Grio, January 24, 2022. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Rosemary Ankwe. Thanks for joining me.